0: Well, while they're still collecting, you can at least turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing that section that deals with, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these difficult chapters. Um, we've got a number of different people um, that are traveling, not just not just for the, the, the week that they have off, but actually um, missionally. And so be praying for. Uh, we've actually got... One group, I'll just count them off, we have one group, um, number of families that have gone together for a number of years, and they are in the Austin, Texas area working with Down Home Ranch, a home that is used for mentally handicapped adults, and uh, particularly those with, I believe, Down syndrome. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to to serve there. I know that a number of our families have been going for a really, really long time. And so you can be praying for those that are at Down Home Ranch. Our college students took off for Albuquerque to work with our partners in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Our junior high students left for Dallas, Texas this morning. And uh, I think Morgan's preaching this morning, right? Morgan's preaching this morning Um, at one of our partner churches in the inner city Dallas area. And then our high school group, along with K-Life, is actually on the other side of the American-Mexican border. They're in Mexico, in Piedras Negras. And uh, you can be praying for them as well. So we've got about 120 or so, I think, uh, that are in those different locations in total. And so be praying for them as they have an opportunity. Um, Me and my son, we're supposed to be in Mexico right now. But I'm in Matthew 24, and it's a little bit of a complicated text, and so it's one of those things, anybody want to preach it? Anyone want to preach it? And so I'm filling in for me today, as, uh, which I know some of you would rather it be Paul or Ryan or somebody else, but uh, I thought, no, I, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to teach this one. It is a difficult one, but difficult texts aren't just ones that are difficult to understand. That's only one side of that coin. And I know that we talked about, I listed last week a number of texts that are difficult to understand texts, but that's not the only kind of difficult text. I want to just give you a text that's difficult to understand um, as as, as one kind of a text. This is an excerpt from Daniel chapter 9, don't have to turn there, I really just want you to feel overwhelmed for a second is all I want to do, I'm not even going to explain it. Here is what, uh, it kind of has to do with our text today, but I'm just going to read it over you. Ready? This is how you know you've got a difficult text coming your way, is when it sounds like this. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be, uh, it shall be built again with, the, with squares and a moat. But a troubled time, and after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of that week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering." And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So glad I'm not in Daniel 9 today. (laughs) Difficult to understand. You have to figure out what the weeks are and is that flood literal or is it not? Desolation. It it is The the idea, we're going to kind of pick it up on our own text, has the idea of, of something being unclean or polluted. And not just in a, like a, a geographical sense. Not just in terms of a, uh, you know, kind of our, our, our world being polluted. But no, in a ritualistic sense. That there's something that is unclean before a very pure and holy God. There's just a, a lot going on there. Difficult to understand. But there are other kinds of difficult texts that aren't necessarily difficult to understand as much as they are difficult to apply. Let me give you another very difficult text that, in many ways, is super simple. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, writes this in chapter four. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I read that one, and I'm going, yeah, the other one seems easier, to be honest with you. The Daniel 9 one, even if I were to understand what it is, I think would have a, an easier sense of application. This one here seems to cost me rather quickly and deeply. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. So the Bible gives us a number of texts that are difficult to understand and a number of texts that are very difficult to apply. But here's the good news. You don't have to figure them out on your own. And you don't have to apply them on your own. The part that I love about being a follower of Jesus Christ is nowhere am I going to be given a test that I have to know all the answers to. And in no way do I need to live up all the time to absolutely everything. No, God is incredibly patient and kind and gracious. Is he not? He is. And not only that, but he, he gives us what is necessary so that we can understand what we need to know And apply what we need to do. And I love that. And I want you to know this that when you see texts like that that are difficult to apply or to understand, know this. That is why God gave you the people around you, that is why God gave us one another. That you weren't supposed to figure out Daniel 9 or Matthew 24 by yourself. Indeed, I did not go back. I know the Hebrew language. I know the Greek language. I could go back to my office, sit down, Matthew 24, I'm going to figure this out. And I did spend some time before I allowed anyone else to begin to influence me. Just me and Matthew, just going at it, Matthew 24. Me, Jesus, and Matthew, going at it. Let's understand this text. And then I'm so grateful that I said, okay, there's some stuff I'm not getting. There's some stuff I'm not understanding. There, there's, I think, some things that I'm not seeing, and I begin to open up. They're called commentaries, okay? And they're really not where I get my sermon. But they help me understand what, what they are, are other believers who, in the past, have studied these same texts, and they're saying, have you looked at it this way? Have you seen this? Have you noticed this? Have you thought about applying it here? That's what they are. And I'm so grateful for them. So, this is the way God intended for you to deal with difficult texts that are hard to understand or hard to apply. He gave you the perfect situation for all of these things to happen. He gave you um, the Spirit of God, He gave you a Spirit. So that you could understand and so that you could have the strength to apply. Even the idea of removing all malice and all anger and all clamor, um, to the, the, even the conviction to do so cannot just be me. It must come from somewhere else. He has given us his spirit, has he not? He has. A spirit of understanding, a spirit of conviction, and a spirit of strength. He's also given us each other. And, and other others, he's given us truly many believers throughout history who've helped us understand and inspired us on terms of how to apply. I'm so grateful that I'm not a theological orphan, but I have other followers that are alongside of me that I worship with or that I study under still to this day, that I continue to study under. God gave us the spirit. God gave us his community, Okay. And then God gave us his word. That there is something powerful about his word. One of the reasons why I don't want to just preach five tricks for this and seven tips for that, and one of the reasons why I love going through all of Matthew's gospel, even if it hits the hard sections, is because we believe that all of the Bible is useful. Now, by the way, I, without any apology, believe the Bible is more useful in certain areas than others. I do believe those descriptions of who Christ is and what he has done Are greater than what we're supposed to do with a goat and its mother's milk from the book of Leviticus, right? Can you figure that out? We can. All of it is true, but then there are certain parts of it that are so true and so relevant and so pertinent to our circumstances that we really need to sit down and and say, we got to figure this out. The gospels are like that. And so now, in the context of the people of God, under the direction of the Spirit of God, we're gonna do our best, do our best, to read the Word of God and then to apply it to our lives. You ready? Verse 30, or sorry, verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24. I need you to have your Bibles open or... And maybe you might even want to use the one in the pew today instead of trying to follow along electronically. We're going to be jumping back a couple of, uh, in a couple of places in this chapter as we try to make sense of this. Because as you know, the disciples asked this question, Jesus, you described the city of Jerusalem, particularly the temple area, coming down. When's that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? Because it sounds like that's the end of the world. And Jesus is describing the end of Jerusalem for them, and he's going to be describing the end of the world, his second coming. And now, you and I reading back after what's going on that was originally told 2,000 years ago to his disciples, and then rewritten down for the early church from Matthew's perspective, I mean, a lot of time has gone by between then and now. And so we're going to do our best. We're not going to be able to, to dot every I and cross every T. I do not believe that's possible in Scripture. I think there are certain um, references that are made that we are going to wait to get to eternity and say, God, by the way, when you made this reference in Leviticus 2 or when you made this reference even in Matthew 5, what were you specifically referring to? Because we thought it was either this, this, or this. What, what was it? And he'll tell us. And by the way, when he tells us, we're going to go, that makes sense, okay? That, oh, I get it. now. Now I get it. And I, I love for that day. But until that day, we're still going to try to study it. So notice how Jesus picks up in verse 15. And this, this first word is kind of like a not, not a change in thought, but a, in light of everything that you just heard me say, which was what? All of these things are going to be there's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be earthquakes. All of these things are going to keep happening and happening and happening. People are going to be led astray. All of these things are going to be happening. Notice this, this the first word, I know it's a small little word in English, so it's the word un in Greek, meaning not quite a therefore, but almost a therefore. So, in light of what I just told you about all of these things happening, when you see the abomination of desolation, which some of your translations may even happen that, have, have that capitalized, The abomination which causes desolation, or the desolation which causes abomination. Literally, one of the ways that this can be actually translating is the devastating pollution. The devastating pollution. I know what you're thinking. Is that my SUV? Is that the devastating pollution? We often think in terms of pollution, and we often think in terms of corruption, we literally think kind of far more about what could happen ecologically to our, to our, to our planet than we do anything else. But no, it's, it's not an issue of ecology. This is not what we're actually driving at here. What we're actually driving at here is another way of looking at the Holy One and us as being not holy and how do we make that step or how do we make that connection? And the Bible teaches back in the pages of the Old Testament very clearly that there must be like a period or an act of, of, uh, of ritual purification. And so those holy places clearly needed to be sanctified or ritualistically cleansed. The temple was obviously one of those. So that phrase which Jesus here is taking from the book of Daniel that talks about this devastating pollution and in the past has referred to a number of times in which that incredible sacred place which Jesus is talking about its destruction, the the temple, when you see a devastating pollution begin to affect the temple area. Now what is it? I don't know. In 41 A.D., Um, Caesar Gaius decided he wanted his, his statue set up in the temple that the Jews might bow down and worship him as Lord and God. Caligula did the same, but Caligula never didn't get a statue far enough. Gaius did the exact same thing. Some people wonder if that might be something that Jesus is referencing here. In an ensuing revolt that is about to happen in the future years, what you are actually going to see is parts of the temple area used where um, used for like barracks where soldiers are going to be. Soldiers are ones that do a lot of killing. That killing is usually associated then with dead bodies. That dead bodies and blood is actually a ritualistically way of, of not being purified. So that might be what they reference. By the time all of this is said and done... When the emperor Vespasian says his son Titus to destroy the temple, the temple is going to be destroyed. And much like we saw uh, way, way, way back in 143 BC when um, Antiochus Epiphanes decided he was a kind of a, a, a leader that was, this would be about 143 years before Jesus Christ. He goes in and he sets up on that same area, he sets up a place for them to sacrifice pigs, so this idea of this devastating pollution or an abomination that causes desolation, that causes destruction, could be referencing a number of things. But what Je- without knowing specifically what Jesus is talking about, here is what he is saying. When you see the devastating pollution happen, notice, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand he's pulling them in. Hey guys, like, don't be lazy about this. Um, when, I, when I hear that, let the reader understand, I always think about, um, please take a look at the, uh, the information packet in the seat in front of you, because a stewardess in a moment is going to be going over our emergency blah, 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 and I'm already not paying attention. You know? Now, how many of you are going, okay, wait a second here, something could happen on this plane, I need to pay special attention. That is a seatbelt. Where are the doors? What is the, okay, no, 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 usually when there's kind of instructions like this that we don't think we're going to use, we just let them go. Jesus here makes a statement, let the reader understand, is actually a call to pay attention and to try to discern what I'm saying. Not because he's trying to be tricky, he's not trying to hide anything, he's saying, listen, I'm going to be explaining something that's going to be happening in 40 years. In 40 years time, these events are going to happen. And I need you right now to be paying attention because you're going to be busy doing other things and I need you to remember these words then. Okay, how many times have you been like, oh yeah, what did she say to me? Oh yeah, what did they say to me? Oh yeah, what did he ask of me? Jesus calls them to pay deep attention. Let the reader understand. Then let those of you who are in Judea, that's like the province around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Um, it's interesting when you go and you visit this part of the world, every, every city with walls and you're like, why, why the walls? It's because whenever there are armies that are traveling in and around that area, they destroy everything that's not protected. And if you're just living in Judea and you're not in a fortified city, you're going to need to run. To the mountains where you will actually find at least some kind of relief or some kind of of, of care. Kind of like David when he was being chased by Saul. Run to the mountains. Hide. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Essentially, when it's coming, it's coming quickly. He, I don't think he's talking specifically, you'll barely have time to get down off the roof and to get out of the city. I don't think he's saying that, but he's saying, I know you guys. Isn't this true? How many of you, when you're trying to get a point across, feel like, I need to really stress this because I don't think you're paying attention? Anybody have to do that sometimes? Kids, wives to spouses, right? I need to describe this in catastrophic terms. We need milk, or however it is you're trying to get something across to your spouse, Right? So he's saying, listen, like there's not going to be a lot of time and when the destruction comes, you can't have a oops, I forgot. No, the consequences are going to be huge, verse 19. And alas, now by the way, if you're giving this much detail, obviously it applies to them. Another major issue that I have with different texts that describe uh, prophetic things is that we read them like it only applies to us. Oh yeah, I need to write that down. Don't go back in the house. I don't believe that this was written first to us. It was written to the disciples. They're the ones that need to hear these instructions. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And then he tells them, I need you to pray specifically for something, notice this. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Like I want you to actively ask God and I want you to actively like ask him God, not in winter, please not in winter, please not in winter, please not in winter. We recently did a podcast dealing with this. I know that so many of us just go, what's the point in praying if God has already made up his mind about it? What's the point in praying? Well, listen, I I just think that for you to try to explain or even to fully understand how God is working all of these things together is clearly outside of my pay grade, to be honest with you. And even though I don't understand how an omnipotent God who knows all, how he responds to my plea, I do know that the fact that Jesus, who is in fact God, when he tells me to pray that it's not in winter, guess what I'm going to do? Pray that it's not in winter. Actively beseeching God that you would do that. Would you do that, God? Please, would you do that? Believing what? That he may even actually listen to those prayers. Verse 21, for then there will be such great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, now again, we don't know what they're going to be cut short by, so just kind of hold on to that. In fact, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, meaning for the sake of those who are believers, he says, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or the word for Messiah, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, which by the way, are not in fact true miracles, they're mere deceptions. If you go back and look at the scriptures, what the devil does is he deceives, These signs and wonders are merely deceptions to lead people astray. He says, if possible, even the elect. Maybe this helps us understand earlier last week where Jesus said there's going to be some who are going to be led astray. One way to answer this, John says in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he is describing those who've wandered away from the faith, who's followed after after, uh, Antichrist and false prophets, and he says this obviously those who were led astray were not a part of us because if they weren't a part of us, they would have never left us. That's one way to understand this. It's one way to look at the the situations in which we see that clearly there's going to be temptations, but those that God loves, that those that God cares for and that those who endure to the end, verse 14 of this text tells us, those who endure to the end will in fact be saved. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he, meaning Jesus, is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in an inner room, do not believe it. People are constantly going to be saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And again, first, before we deal with us, first he's telling them, do not chase the little Jesus rabbit everywhere. Let it go. It's not true. Why is it not true? Look at verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? The word there for coming in verse 27 is the word parousia, which is a very special word, meaning his appearing. It's a word that usually describes that moment in which time stops and the sky splits and Jesus Christ appears in his final judgment upon the world. He says, listen, you need to understand these hardships are coming. All these devastating things are gonna be happening. You can't be running out there. If you run out there, you'll get killed. This is very practical advice to the disciples. And think about it this way. The church is about to be established in a matter of weeks. And then in a matter of months, there's going to be 3,000 people added. And then another 5,000 people added. And then thousands and thousands more, which means in Jerusalem, there are going to be thousands of followers of Jesus. And then there's going to be hardships that are going to come. And they're not all as stable. They're not all as, as wonderful and, and as mature and as understanding as Peter and John and James. Actually, James is gonna be dead. Peter's probably gonna be somewhere else by the time most of these hardships begin to, begin to happen. And so this instruction that Jesus is giving to the disciples is something that will be shared with future disciples because there will literally be thousands of believers in Jerusalem hearing news, hey, did you hear the Messiah came back? Did you hear Jesus came back? And Jesus is making it very clear. Do not listen. Next time I come, there'll be no question. That's why if you say to me, hey, Jim, guess what? I don't know if you know this, but Jesus came back and he lives in Detroit. I don't believe you, and not just because you said Detroit, okay, although I've been to Detroit, I can't imagine him going there, but I'm telling you, that's not the the, the, the Detroit part of that sentence is not the confusing part. The confusing part is Jesus Christ came back and I did not know. When Jesus Christ comes back, it will be clear. Take a look at this last verse, verse 28, I love this. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Basically, what he's saying is, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when there's something dead and dying, you'll always get a crowd. So just because a crowd have gathered around it and they're looking at it, doesn't mean, hey, let's go take a look at that. No, because when you get there, guess what you're going to find? It's a dead corpse. Do not be seduced. Do not be tricked into believing false things. This is what concerns me most when I look at a church, now kind of stepping into our time, that are quick to follow and to chase after these random ideas about is Jesus Christ coming back here or is he coming back then or what's going on here and what's going on there. And you know what I think it is. And you know what I think it's going to be. I think it's Russia. I think it's China. I think it's Iraq. I think it's Iran. I think it's, who? give me. I, I don't... It will be more clear than that when the second one comes. When his appearing, his parousia, his, when his final judgment, when it comes, there'll be no confusion, there'll be no, I wonder if that's really Jesus, we will in fact know, and that we can trust. And so he tells them that. Now, verses 29 through 31, I need you to hold on because I I ordinarily read these fast and then skip over and hope nobody asks any questions. I'm not, I didn't stay home from Mexico this morning to do that. I stayed home from Mexico to read this through with you and to give you another way of looking at some very interesting scripture. Do you mind? Okay, good. Um, I was going to do it anyway, but the fact that you want me to makes it even better. Look at verse 29. And I, the first, first word that I notice is the word, first word, immediately, euthus. Um, it's a word that Matthew usually doesn't use. Mark uses it all the time. Immediately Jesus does this, and immediately Jesus does that. That actually does not appear a lot in Matthew's gospel. When it does, it seems to mean something. So he is describing all of these things happen. Then he says, hey, by the way, when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be clear. And then he goes, immediately. So what, what's happening here? Let's look at it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I read that, and I go, end of the world. Anybody else? That's the end of the world. Hello? End of the world? Okay. Um, Interestingly enough, that's a rather new phenomenon to read that way. Actually, if you go back and you look at it in the Old Testament, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 31, Zephaniah, Joel, and Amos. It describes many, many, many times in the, throughout history when the sky is turned black, where the moon has turned blood red, and when all the stars fell and hit the earth. Okay, let's, let's think about this for a second. Literally, how many stars do you think have hit the earth? Let's just think through this. Answer rhymes with shmiro. And that's not nero, it's zero. okay. But then how do you explain that, Jim? Are you, you don't believe in the Bible? No, I totally believe in the Bible. But I also let the Bible speak about things in the Bible's terms and not just in like our modern terms. So when you see this kind of language, by the way, it, it appears in prophetic or apocalyptic books. And what it is describing, very interesting. I don't have time to look at it, but just write down Acts 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is starting his the 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 church is about to begin, and Peter is preaching day of Pentecost, and he is speaking in a way that is wonderful. And everybody's like, Wow, we can all understand all of us speak different languages and we can hear him and we can all understand him. This is amazing. What is going on? And Peter quotes Joel too. He says, Well, don't you know? Joel says that in these days there's going to be, and he describes like the moon, and the sun, and the stars, and all this crazy cosmic stuff happening. And they didn't go, well, that kid, that's not what's happening, Peter. I just mean I can, understand, I can understand you, and I feel like there's something miraculous that's happening. The Bible repeatedly uses language like this to describe God's interjection into what's happening around us, not to be taken kind of from a scientific background. I mean, think about it. How, even the idea of stars hitting the earth, which appears a number of times in the Bible, if you don't take that figuratively at some level, they would never even get here before the world would be completely destroyed. Correct? Right? You wouldn't even need all of them. Our own sun gets too close to us. Zzz. So all the stars striking the earth is clearly an expression and what is it? God is on the move and God is acting and God is responding. Why do they use this language? And you want to know why? Because you and I don't believe it. You and I see stuff happen all the time. And you know what it is? That's just human events. You hear what happened the other day in Europe? Oh, yeah, those are just, you know, this is the way economic systems work nowadays. You know what's going on right now in Africa? Well, I'll tell you, if you look at the socioeconomic situations of tribal. Blah, 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 blah. All of our answers are completely no God dimension at all. We've, we've removed any kind of miraculous. Earthquake happens in Haiti. Do you understand how that works? Yeah, it's the movement to, to, to have tectonic plates. You know how tornadoes happen? Oh, yeah, we totally, actually. We had a girl in our church. She was studying it, right? She knows that She can explain it totally. There's no, really, there's no divine intervention in our lives at all anymore. And back then, not because they didn't understand how to explain it, they are pointing out, I'm telling you right now, immediately, when these things are going on, when these things are happening, which, by the way, Jesus says, don't chase these messiahs, because when I come, it's going to be clear. That's not him coming. That's just saying, don't follow them. It's going to be clear. Right now, he ends talking about vultures gathering. He's still describing, mountain one, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, immediately after this, all these cosmic things are gonna happen. Verse 30, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, well, that's gotta be the second coming then, Right? I mean, I get it that it might not be literal, but isn't that the second coming? This is one of the things that blew my mind. By the way, I'm not teaching something that hasn't been taught in many other places. It's just not taught very often in many churches that I usually am a part of uh, because we like, if I can say this nicely, because it's it's us, it's not just you guys, it's all of us. We like easier way to think about things than harder way to think about things. Have you noticed? We just do, naturally. Just, can you give me an easier way to think about that? Because, you know, we got lunch at 1225. So there's a little bit more here, is that when you look at these texts, when you think about the coming, how many of you hear about the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, you think about Him coming here. Anybody else? Yeah, the coming of Jesus, Him coming here. Now imagine Jesus is on the earth and they're talking about, Jesus talking about the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. Can anybody else think of another location where Jesus could come to if He was on the earth, Heaven. There are a couple of instances in the Old Testament where the Old Testament prophets use language like this and they're describing God coming in judgment and his vindication of him being right and true, the right and true judge. And I come in judgment and the heavens say, look how wonderful God is. And I'll never forget like the first time I ever read this, and the more that I read it, the more I think, "Wow, you're right. That actually fits, kind of good." What he is describing here in these three verses is not his second coming. And by the way, he will talk about that when I come back next week. Um, should I come back and he doesn't come back, we're going to be talking about the second coming next week. So I'm not saying this doesn't. He's not going to come back. No, he's coming back, just like he described in the previous uh, few, few verses. But what he's actually describing here is a very critical time in history when Jesus Christ was enthroned on high as the rightful king of the universe. I know that we just go, what do you mean when he went back up into the clouds? (laughs) Yeah, the ascension. And by the way, it was a really big deal. When Jesus Christ went back up into the heavens, that is his in a way that they call it his enthronement. It is when the heavens receive him. And so often when I think about everything, it's just about me and it's just about us and it's just about here. But actually there is a rather rich tradition of interpreting this text, this entire text, not describing his second coming to the earth and judgment, no, actually, because that's still to come but describing that after Jerusalem is destroyed and after all of these things are taking place, what will happen is what Jesus said will happen, which is I am the true king and I am the true Lord and the heavens will receive me. And from there I will reign. Oh, you mean like when he went up to heaven in a cloud? No, like it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords reigning from on high as He is standing, seating, uh, seated um, on behalf of us, interceding on behalf of us, as He is making all of the entire world, the Lord is making the entire world under His feet. This is what is happening right now. And this is the description I believe that is happening in verses 29 through 31. And this gathering that you're about to see, what we are seeing is what Jesus said is true. Jesus Christ is going to be enthroned on high, and now there is a period of human history where there is going to be the gathering of the people. This is actually, you find this in Zephaniah, you find this in Joel and Amos and Isaiah, that there's going to be this period of time within human history where where, where the Messiah is enthroned on high as he is collecting for himself a group of people. Um, that sounds like now notice how verse 31 continues and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call the word angels literally just means messengers we put wings on everything but literally the word just means messenger it doesn't mean like angels the way we think it could literally just be messengers okay but we interpret this whole section as second coming, and so we add the word angels, but you could translate that angel, messenger, and all of a sudden it looks a lot more like you and me. And he will send out his messengers with a loud trumpet call, and which is usually a proclamation of some great news, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I think 29 through 31 is hey by the way if you ever think that the Jesus on the cross is all that there is no that's not he right now is seated at the right hand of the th- throne of heaven and he is in fact reigning do you believe that That is where all this all this is going to happen from So you're wondering hey what happened to Jesus he is fine and reigning supremely Verse 32 he continues so from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Going back, still talking to the disciples about Jerusalem, as soon as its branch becomes tensor and puffs out its and, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, see, this is where I think he sees it more as one continuous event, destruction of Jerusalem. When you see these things, you will know that he is near in judgment. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation, this verse, I don't know how to deal with this verse if, if, if that previous verses are talking about the second coming. It gets complicated. But what does he say in 34? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And the word, now by the way, we could take this generation and make it figurative. We could do that. But someone's gonna have to get figurative somewhere. I'd rather get figurative with figurative language And then be more literal with more literal language than vice versa. That's kind of the way I like to interpret the Bible. These figurative things, stars falling. I think that's figurative. This This generation will not pass away as he's looking at them. More likely, more literal. By the way, this phrase actually is also used in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds. And then he says, and surely this will not happen until this generation is done speaking into all the towns of Israel. Very similar language in Matthew 10. I never noticed that. So Jesus is describing this is what's going to happen. All of these things are going to take place. This generation is not going to pass away. I need you guys to be aware of this. I need you guys to plan for this because it's coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Finally, Jesus puts kind kind of the underlining statement is what, hey, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, this is not up for debate. This is going to happen. The destruction that is going to come is going to come. And even though it might seem like it's never going to happen, because, you know, time has that way of, of seducing us into believing things like judgment aren't going to happen. I, I, I married my wife and I weighed 144 pounds. And I ate a lot and people would say to me jim you got to be careful eating like that and i said to them why cuz i was a lot thinner back then you know and they said because you i mean it's it's going to catch up to you and i said no it's not and it did you really need to study the finals coming you know you really need to study i know i will i know i will you know, Jesus Christ is coming back, you know. I know. Kick the can, kick the can, kick the can down the road. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Literally, I think he's saying, I'm done talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm now going to answer your second question, which we'll deal with next week. But he is saying, I promise you I'm gonna come in judgment on this place. And I'm giving you guys some heads up on how you might be able to save, literally, your lives or the lives of those you love. I'm giving you some inside information. One of the things that's fascinating is a lot of scholars believed for a long time that this book was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, literally hundreds of years after. If this book was written hundreds of years later, or hundreds hundreds of years after the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed, don't you think it would be more clear than it is? Think about it. This is one of the reasons why I really believe strongly in the church tradition that Matthew is written in roughly 55 AD is how not clear the destruction of Jerusalem is in this account. Not that, By the way, not that Jesus didn't know. Jesus knew. Jesus understood what was gonna happen. And interestingly enough, it, it goes something like this. The Romans come down under, at that time, commander Vespasian, and he begins to lock Judea into control in about 62 AD. And he can take care of every location except for three. One is Jerusalem because of its great walls. Another one is known as the Herodium, a site that Herod had built. And then the third one was Masada. In those three locations, there were still outposts of rebel Jews, zealots, who were still rebelling against the Roman Empire. In about 67 AD, there was a, a civil war in Rome. And Vespasian was called home. And so he left. And so for about a year and a half to two years, there was a reprieve where the occupation was gone. How do you think those people in Jerusalem and Masada and the Herodians, what do you think they did? Yeah, look at that. That's all we needed to do was we just needed to hold out. And now they're all gone. Let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we're going to get more eating and drinking and marrying in. Well, they settle their problems in Rome in about 68. Vespasian is made Caesar, and he remembers Judea. He sends back his son, Titus Vespasian, with an entire legion of soldiers. They surround Jerusalem, and after five months, they finally break in. And by the time they've done that, Eleazar the Zealot and John of Geshala, the just rebel, have utterly destroyed the, the, the city. The things that they were doing on the Temple Mount were just atrocious. And the cutting short, most likely, again, we don't know this. We only know history and we have to kind of line them up and I, I, I'm just always careful to go, I'll let God kind of draw the dots and the lines perfectly. But do you know what the cutting of short probably is? Is when the Romans finally broke through. When the Romans finally broke through and then destroyed the Temple, that was the first time in a long time, that many of those people began to eat again. And many of those people were followers of Jesus Christ, like you and I, whose parents and grandparents decided to believe a crazy message about a Messiah, and not some crazier message that he was out living in the wilderness. So what are these Jews back then supposed to do with this? What is this teaching meant to do for them? Number one, it's meant to remind them back then That God takes the rejection of him seriously. That's what the disciples need to hear. Like, judgment is coming to Jerusalem. I know um, that it is so easy for us to believe that we can live any way that we want, that we can act any way that we want, and that, that judgment will just never come. And I bet you they felt the exact same way. Who could scale these walls? Who could ever destroy this? And, and they could do almost anything they wanted. Um, they could manipulate. They could, they could manipulate Jesus. They could just take him for the things that he could give to him, but they didn't really follow him. They could do these things. They could nail him to a tree. Wait a couple days. I, I mean, hear me. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's rumors that he actually rose again. And I'm not saying that things aren't happening, but can you imagine the religious leaders going, Nothing really changed. It looks like there's no real judgment. I mean, there's no way we killed the son of God and he wouldn't come and do something. Oh, you don't know how God works. Like, just wait. How long? A week? Like, just I want you to just reflect on this. And Jesus is telling these people, like, I don't need you to vindicate for me. I don't need you to. God's going to deal with this. In very practical terms, what are the disciples in the original, original audience supposed to do? Prepare. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. And be busy as angels or messengers telling the good news about who Jesus Christ is. It's interesting that when that kind of um, looming cloud comes over them, this is the judgments that are coming. It put the disciples to work. The disciples looked at the impending judgment of God and said, Ben, we've got a message to tell. These people need to hear this news. If that's what's about to happen to Stillwater, we need to get out there and share with these people about what's going to happen. Because they'll never believe about fleeing or running or preparing if they don't already believe in who Jesus Christ is. They won't believe a judgment is coming. They'll always just think it's just going to get better and better and better. Maybe one of the reasons why the disciples took their church work so seriously in those first few years was because they knew this is what was coming. That's what it meant for them. And they did great. The story tells, the story of of what happened historically and how the church responded tells a pretty amazing story. So then, what does this teaching mean to us? Well, I, I think this is the part that I find so beautiful. I don't need to be looking for exactly how every one of those things line up to my day today as much as I can look back into history and see that those same things that happened back then that are true for them still stand true for us today, that God is not mocked, that judgment still comes, that no matter what anybody wants to say about God being loving and caring, um, and that anybody wants to say about God being vindictive and spiteful, that none of those things, what we say, aren't what matters most. What matters most is what God has spoken about himself about what Jesus has declared to be true. And Jesus has declared that he came to bring peace. And for those who receive him, you will find peace, peace to you. You don't need to be worried about the destruction of Stillwater or the second coming. For you have peace with God through Christ. And therefore, don't let these things alarm you. Don't be deceived. In fact, you cannot be deceived if you trust in the Holy Spirit, are are in that biblical community. If you follow the word, you follow the Spirit's leading, you will be fine. And we can take comfort in that. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus showing up and more direct conversations about the second coming. But suffice it to say, here's what I love, is when I look at the idea that I need to get prepared for Jesus Christ to come back or for something to ever happen to me, the good news is, I can, if, I had a, if I had a to-do list, get prepared for Jesus, I could say, I've already done that. I can check that one off. One of the things I hate about that mentality of, oh, can you imagine if Jesus Christ came back today, what would you do? Um, I don't know, I'm driving to Mexico. If he comes back, I'll meet him between somewhere between here and Del Rio. But I have nothing that I need to do. I've already done it. I've already placed my trust in him. I don't have anything to do except a mission to live out until he comes back. But in terms of to do, I'm prepared. Are you prepared? Like, are you ready to meet him? The one who's enthroned on high the one who has received the splendor of the heavens because of who he is, even though he was rejected on earth, have you trusted his, his sacrifice as your peace? One other thing that I want to challenge us to do, I want to close with this. Recently, we did a podcast on the movie, The Shack, that came out, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed the movie. Listen to our podcast, because my enjoyment of it's a little complicated, like most things in life, okay? But let me just say this. Here's the one part that I think I'm, I get concerned about, is that whenever, one of the reasons why the movie, The Shack, came out was because the, one of the authors of the book really wanted to make sure that people knew that above all else, God was loving, 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 sweet and kind and cuddly. And um, for those of you that see God as an absolute evil tyrant who hates you, who just really wants you to kill you, and then after he's done killing you, to kill you again, and that's your view of God, then I I get it. That view of God is not biblical, and you probably do need to hear how much God loves you and cares for you. I do believe that. And I, I actually enjoyed that part of the movie. I went and saw the movie for the podcast, and I really appreciated how much the movie did accomplish that. It made me recognize and feel just how much god father son spirit how much he loves me that was wonderful but here's what the movie cannot do it cannot prepare us for the fact that there is also a day of judgment that's coming like it's not a big teddy bear in the sky that's coming you know that right and there is, a, there is a real judgment that comes not to all, but to those who've chosen to rebel. And my concern about movies with the shack is by the time we're done domesticating God, there's really no need, no need or reason to fear him or hold him in kind of reverent awe because we've completely diluted him into some kind of flavorable Kool-Aid. But Matthew 24 The end of 23 describes a God who loves you and cares for you. I cannot describe him more loving than he already is. And a God that is holy and righteous and will judge us perfectly. I cannot describe how righteous and and just his judgments will be. So, how do I live between those two places? Easy. Through Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, for what he has done and for what he will do. God, thank you for difficult texts, walking through them. I don't know if I've nailed it perfectly. I do know that in eternity, you can explain it to me and I look forward to that day. But until then, I know you promised to come in 70 AD in judgment and we have seen that. And God, you've promised to come again and we wait for that. Therefore, I pray that we would wait like your people have always waited, expectingly, having taken care of that which we needed to take care of, putting our faith in you and now living out our faith missionally. God, give us strength and peace as we serve you until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.